Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 67. We spend a lot of time talking about high-level theoretical aspects and consequences of AI on this show. But right now, if you want to do anything with AI, then you've got to deal with return on investment equations. You've got to deal in hard cash. And you've got to know where to find people that can do AI. And you've got to know what's realistic. So we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of that today with our guest, Olivier Caron-Lazat, who is the CEO of Explore.ai, an AI-as-a-service company. I caught up with him when he was working out of his RV in the woods in Quebec, a lifestyle that would signal success to a great many of us, because I wanted to talk about what it's like to wrangle a team of developers who need to be paid with customers who need to supply money and get value in return. So you're going to hear a lot of practical, real-world, battle-tested experience about AI being developed today. And this will be helpful to a lot of you who throw dollar signs around for a living, no matter which side of the buyer-seller relationship you're on. So let's hear what it's like on the front lines of AI development with Olivier caron Lazat. Olivier, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. And I'm looking at you right now in your RV out in the woods, living what many would say the dream of a CEO in the AI business of working remotely, extremely remotely in this case. And tell us about how you got to this place of being able to realize the goal of working on AI from out in the middle of a forest. All right, well, then I'll have to provide a little bit of context then. In my previous, I was co-founder of Biogenic previously, which were bought by Byron Health Group, Biron, here in Quebec. And I had a three-year contract that ended up during 2020 in March, more specifically. So I was already working on my new venture, but it, I ended up having to launch it on March 2020 when they closed schools here and they closed offices. And I ended up at home with my four kids and I had to handle the kids and start a business at the same time. So it's literally as if I had five kids at home. <laughs> it was not super easy, but I had to find some help doing it. So I started to look around at how this COVID situation could actually benefit me in some way, just to try to see around the problem. And I ended up finding a lot of AI expert software developers that were willing to do from five to 15 hours a week more than they actually do because they didn't have to travel anymore. And now these people are, are very, very talented and normally they wouldn't work elsewhere, but they just felt like they wanted a chance to show other people that they were good and it worked. And the work they were doing was quite easy to do from home. And so I ended up building a network. Currently, we are 138 such experts, mainly AI experts uh, that are willing to help us from five to 15 hours a week. 
And so with all of these very talented people, myself, I didn't have to be as talented in AI. <laughs> and I thought I would have to for having the first projects with, uh, with her company. Well, you can do a lot with that kind of talent on tap. And let's explore this remote collaboration here for a bit, because that really puts you at the ground zero of a intense debate that's happening right now and sometimes acrimonious in various companies where the bosses are saying, okay, pandemic's over, time to come back to the office. And they're saying, we made it work for a year from home. Why do you want us to get stuck in traffic for two hours a day? And so here you are creating a new model with people on tap who've got extra time, who have been able to work from home. You're doing that with the men in AI. What are the lessons, I think, that the insights that you've had here in your position as a CEO of bringing people together for this remote work that you think are informed by this shift in our working patterns due to what's happened in the last year? Yeah, that's a good point. In the first year of the pandemic, obviously hiring people from remotely was normal. But then because we have a couple of employees and not just part-time worker, I had to make sure that these people wanted to work from home for a while because we're not going to have an office for probably ever. And so it's not everybody that actually wants to work remotely all the time. We are seeing right now a lot of statistics about people not wanting to return to their offices. There are people like that, but that's not everybody. So the first thing is to make sure that you hire, well, in my case, that I hire people that are willing to work from home that are that wants to work from home. And then the second thing is about tools, making sure that they like the tool they use. If they don't like their computer and they prefer their TV and they're at home unmanaged by anyone, it's hard to motivate oneself into using the computer. So making sure that they are comfortable in their environment, that they like the tools they use, and they like the project they work on. And that's another thing that Explore AI can provide. We don't work on thousands of hour projects. We work with lots of different companies on their small projects. So there's always a different challenge, which is something that please most experts are actually that I find that most people that are talented, they like these environments with lots of different challenges. How did you get into AI? How did that field open itself up to you or vice versa? So I had some AI experience back and forth in my previous days. I've been in research centers a little bit. And before co-founding Biogenic, I was in bioinformatics for five years. Now, back in the days, well, that's currently the case still. But in bioinformatics, you don't have much projects without AI. Now, everything that's, every paper written has some form of AI in it. And so it was the case that I was helping lots of students and grad students into the AI part of their projects. But with Biogenic, we were new. I was mainly working on the infrastructure, the operations. So I was at least four years without touching AI. And then when we were bought by Biron, uh, I had the chance of becoming their chief data officer. It's just a way to say that my role was to value the data they had and the most trivial way or obvious way to add value to the data right now was through AI. So I had some weeks to get some formation, coaching, just to be up to speed with newer technologies. 
And I started hiring people and coaching startups around us. So I was sometimes hands-on with the AI, but most of the time just piloting projects mm. in different fields. Like for example, in vision, biochemistry, or just business intelligence, really different fields. That's another thing that I noticed there is that it's really hard to find one talent in AI that manages to work with sound, image, tabular values. These are expertises. And in the past, in the software development world, we've seen that the software developer is not just a guy that can work in any kind of software languages. They eventually get specialized. And the same thing is true about AI. But for a company with a small budget, you can't have one expert with all of these expertises. Hence the idea behind Explore AI to be able to help these small companies with their project to hire us instead of hiring multiple different expertises. So do AI developers specialize in vertical applications to uh, an extent like I think you're saying there? I thought that they would be specialized in horizontal technologies, but it seems like you're saying that they specialize in the sector that it's applied in or the technology, whether it's vision, natural language, how does that work out? Yeah, I think a little bit of both is true. When I've seen people coming out from the universities, they tend to have a horizontal field of expertise. They are very good in everything that's deep learning, or they're very good with any form of object detector, not just in images. But when they get in the private sector or they start working, and then that's where they start getting these vertical. And they become very good in the type of data they work with. They become subject matter expert in this type of data, as well as the machine learning models that work well with those. Does bioinformatics form a large part of your business at the moment? <laughs> that's a good question. A very good question. Actually, not a large part. The first year of Explore AI, I was on a strong non-compete. <laughs> so I really didn't touch at all these kind of projects. Now it's different. I have a couple of clients. I'm mainly the only employee with bioinformatics experience. I do have some experts available, but out of the five employees we are right now, I'm the only one that actually does hands down the bioinformatics projects. So you have five employees and over 100 contractors of people for hire, is that right? Yeah. So when a project comes in, what causes you to decide whether that's something that you want? Well, as for any business, it's true that it's hard to say no. <laughs> so I didn't have to say no to a lot of projects. I did have some people coming at me very early on on their project. And so I was offering some counseling to help them sometimes just get the right grants for their project. And then a couple of months later, they come in and, and we work together. We also help these companies get the data right because it's worth it for the company to work with their data to learn how to process and prepare their data for the machine learning part. It's good to have the companies do it themselves through their business intelligence people just because any transformation that's needed for machine learning, they're going to have to do it when they're going to run the model and operations when they deploy the model. So that part is very important. And we are actually a very small organization. So we tend to, most organizations that are coming at us, they are also small to medium-sized businesses. We make them a little bit more comfortable, I guess, than the bigger groups. So for now, I think it's 
a very good fit. Every project we had fit between 40 and around 300 hours. And how much do you see of unrealistic expectations about what AI can do? I've had maybe 10 people that I've had to say that this is either not possible right now or it's just not been used before and thus there is some uncertainty on their project. But what we really like as a business is that we get a client describing the project and we find one of our experts that says, I've done something very similar. It takes that amount of time using that and that technology. It's really concrete. We know exactly how to do it and how long it's going to take. So for the client, it's really easy to say yes or no to that project. Now, when the client comes in with something that's new, that no other company like them has done before, they're in slightly in the fundamental stage that's not concrete enough. That's when we try to find a university partner for them because it makes more sense to have universities, researchers, and students work on their, it's not quite a prototype, but they're, let's say, pre-prototype. It's more cost-effective than having a private company. We hear a lot about how organizations need to have their data well curated before they can let AI loose on it. And do you find people coming in who haven't done that? And is it hard to get them to accept what they might need to do? So far, it's been going very well. For example, if a software company comes to us and they are not quite there yet in terms of their data, most of the time we've found pre-trained models or existing APIs that some of our experts have knowledge using. And we're going to coach the company into using or implementing this AI. And in the same process, they prepare their data. So they're going to be using this API for, uh, let's say, a year while prepping their data and making sure that in a year they can have a project and build their own API and be self-sufficient if you want. So that's kind of one of the way we have been redirecting these companies. So they have something concrete they can work on and they prepare in a way that all the staff there, they understand what's going on. They see how they use this API so they know which kind of transformation they need to do with their own data to be able to do the same thing in a year, for example. So would you say that then people are getting better educated, more intelligent and aware about the way that their data needs to be ready for using AI? Yes, I've been impressed so far. I've had some people come at me saying, I have a competitor, they've done this project in Vision, they have some robot that goes on a tube and they record everything and they process everything. We want to do the same thing. And they know, the first thing is they tell me, we have that many recordings of robots and they have been annotated by people telling at that time or at this distance, there was this artifact. So they already know which kind of data they had. It's not perfect, but it's actually quite close. And hmm. I think you're right. People are, they know more and more how, how this stuff works. That's encouraging. So what sort of applications have you been involved in providing here? You mentioned machine vision there. What are some examples you can talk about of the ways that people have been using AI? Where broadly does it benefit them? We're working with a lot of software companies that themselves have different clients on different verticals. So we've been working with, for example, a company in building roads, the process of building roads. Is there a term for that in English? Building a road? Yeah. 
you know, these different layers, they... Oh, road building. Yeah, okay. So that's just called road building? As far as I know. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, so one of my clients is an engineering firm. They work with people that are building the road and they have lots of different machines. For a company like that to have a project in AI, they would need a lot of different talent because they have time series, they have geopositions, they have images that they need to extract some form of defect from the images. And so these are some projects that we work on. Their engineer or their software engineer will pull together a software that has lots of different AI components or machine learning components in it. AI, machine learning, sometimes it's just a very fancy way of to process the information. That's always we work with the clients, but these are the kind of projects that we can work on. Another type of data that we've been working with a lot is documents. There are more and more people with documents that want to scan them, extract some form of information from them, and they don't have access to it very easily. We've had some people that we help implement the best OCR into their software, others for which no commercial OCR would work, and we had to develop a custom form of OCR. Mm. How much of what you do is uh, one and done where people say, here's data, figure out something from it, give me the solution, and the solution is what they want versus they need a system to integrate with their business to work on an ongoing basis with new data as it comes in? Half and half, I would say. About half and half. And what sort of advice do you have for businesses that are asking themselves, Here's a bandwagon here. AI is all over the place. And so people in every industry have got to be getting nervous, thinking, are my competitors using AI? How are they using it? Is it giving them an advantage? Am I about to be thrown out of the market? What sort of questions should they ask themselves before coming to you? Good question. I think before they ask themselves if they want AI or not, they need to have some form of a need. A need can come from a competitor developing something that gives them an edge that they don't have. Now, if that happens, whether it's AI or not, they have to hop into the bag in or find a workaround. We implement something that's going to make sure that they'll stay up as a business. That's been true for hundreds of years, regardless of AI. So my focus with Explore AI has been more on giving value to businesses than AI. Of course, I'm all about AI, meaning that people approach me thinking that they need something that's AI, but they don't necessarily come out of it with an AI solution. We are helping them use ready-made solutions most of the time that are using AI, but mm. still there are sometimes solutions that they don't see that are really close to AI, but actually just better for them to use through APIs, through just the right expertise. As a business, one of our core focus is to add value to other businesses, mm. regardless whether it's AI or not. The question that people need to ask themselves is which kind of direction they want to go when one of their competitor has an AI service. If they want to go head on with them, with their own service, do they want to implement something that exists that is just as close, just as good, or some other business strategy, that's what they want to do. If they work around and shift their business, they're probably not going to have a use for us. If they want to become competitive compared to their competitor that are also using AI, 
then they might invest. So you mentioned non-AI solutions there. Where does that dividing line fall? I find this a question that's alternately fascinating and frustrating, hard to answer. Where does that dividing line fall so that you can say, well, that's not AI, that's business analytics or business intelligence or that's regression analysis or that's statistical clustering or what deserves the term AI? It depends on who's asking. For a business that comes and see us, if we have a bunch of data and they need something to be predicted out of this, for example, tabular data, whatever the solution we come up with, what's going to be interesting for them is precision of the solution. If it turns out that linear regression is the best way, that's what we develop for them. And whether they call it AI or we call it AR or not, it's almost irrelevant. So that depends on who's asking. <laughs> Are we, in your opinion, going to get to perhaps another AI winter where people will keep doing these things, but no one will want to call it AI? That's possible. I've seen some groups in Montreal mostly that are using new terms instead of AI. I think it's not a bad idea by itself. I think what's most likely to happen is that there's going to be some fragmentation about the term AI. We've launched a company with the oldest term, the one that's very broad and that on some terms, even regex or some very basic algorithms are within that large AI definition. But I think in most people's minds, AI means something a step above that, like Siri, Alexa, uh, these kind of systems. I'll make a parallel with um, a term called organic that's been coined, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. Can't remember exactly when, but back in the days, the, the official definition was not what it is today. Now today, for everybody, organic means that you're growing your food without some additives. I think we might see something like that happen to artificial intelligence. Either the term will evolve or some new term will come up and we'll make it clearer whether something is AI or not. Yeah, maybe we'll have organic AI. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why not? How much of what you produce is customer service agents, customer interaction? The closest I've done in that regard was looking through marketing data for a churn, like the chances of someone not buying another product for a company. We had only one project in this direction. One of the things we were seeing as a company is that the more solutions that exist that have already this AI inside of it, the less such product we have on this. So for example, if I know, let's say HubSpot has an AI system that actually calculates your churn rate or something similar, then there are less and less chances that we're going to have AI projects in that field. How big a threat is someone like Watson or Amazon to you? Amazon seems to launch a new service every week, some vertical AI system. Is that something where they will, you can see them nibbling away at your business by launching something that reproduces what you just spent three weeks coding? That's a very interesting point. And the way we envision it as a business is we're trying to help our partners be less and less affected by that. But the bigger potential risk for us is to build something like that for one client and then have this other companies start a service that works better than what we've developed. We and the client are both like, losing something. But that would be sporadic. That wouldn't happen to us. We are a service company. We are accompanying our 
clients into implementing AI, whether we are coding it for them or we just help them pick the right choice. And if I do a parallel with whatever Amazon is doing in the AI world, and for example, <laughs> maybe you're not aware of that, but I'm trying to find a good analogy here. Let's suppose uh, you're a cook and you have a client that comes up and asks for a meal that you know as a cook, there's like 30 different variants of this meal. How are you going to cook it? It depends on what you can get from the client as what you think they want. We are going to try to understand these services as they get out. We're trying to have experts that know these services and I can accompany our clients into using the right service. So we are, in a way, trying to serve the wave of new AI services by offering service to our clients to pick the right one. The more there is in this market, the better for us. It's a very volatile market in every way. Is it hard to hold on to talent in this? Well, what do you need to do? Are you at risk of companies poaching the people that you have? Yeah, it happens already. I mean, there are a couple of companies that are growing that are picking our part-time people and giving them contracts that they can't work with us anymore. So it happens. Mm. Uh, but I guess it goes in every direction. All companies work this way. So what we do as a strategy is we keep growing our network faster than it churns <laughs> in a way. Right. And that's kind of a strategy so far. What do you tell people that you're approaching to be part of your team? What's the unique selling point of Explore.ai? We like to tell them that they've developed some very specific expertise, that they are very good in something hyper-specific and they can share this talent with other. Of course, they are paid to do this, so it also helps. There's always this monetary incentive that we need as human beings. And there's the factor of the challenge. If we need them, it's because it's hard. It's really challenging. And if they're very good and they're the best in their vertical, then it's super interesting for them to actually tackle these challenge that comes up. And the teams that you're forming for each project, to what extent are these people that have worked together before or are you pulling resources from a list, put them together and say, okay, guys, go. How does the teamwork of the project come together? Yeah, so most of the time we'll have a team for one project that haven't had the occasion to work together before. We like to work as one coach, one doer, somebody that's actually going to do the work and another one that's going to coach him into going in the right direction. And by the way, we do the same thing with our clients. Now we are coaching some of our clients in the same approach that we've been doing in the last year with these experts stepping in for 15% of the projects in terms of hours are for these people and the other ones are for uh, most of the time they are employees or part-time employees that come in. They're the ones speaking with the client. That's another thing. These contextual, they can concentrate on their expertise and coach other AI experts. They don't have to speak to the client, which is sometimes hard for them to use the right language to speak to our clients. What do you expect to be doing or what would you like to be doing 10 years from now with AI? That's the biggest question so far. It's really hard to say. AI has been going sometimes really fast, sometimes a little bit slower the past years. So it's really hard to tell which field of AI is going to explode. In the past years, we've seen a lot of progress in vision, but then it started slow. 
but there are very, very cool AI approaches and pre-trained models that are existing right now. And we didn't see them being applied correctly on the market yet. So there's like these two different things, like the AI sometimes is moving faster. The market will be there just a few years after, but I'm also looking into the new startups and what the subject of what they're trying to achieve. Some of them are very big challenges. I'm not sure they're going to make it, but most of them are actually just implementing stuff that we've seen in other industries. It's like for a year and a year and a half, there's more startup in AI, but they're not fundamentally different anymore. They just attack a different vertical. Mm. And so does that mean that there's going to be less development, like fundamental development in new AI approach? I really don't know. Mm. Well, I think we both have children, right? Are yours interested in AI? Uh, yeah, in two ways. They are interested into what I'm telling them that we can do. Like we can teach some machine to do some of the stuff that they still can't do. And some other machines, they, they were not able to teach them into, for example, doing bicycle, which is very easy for them to do. They find it funny. There's a lot of toys now right now that are just AI enabled, but that's just something very basic, but still that's impressive for uh, the kids. My kids are really amazed by these things. Uh, mm. They behave, they react automatically uh, to some cue or keywords. And it's impressive. Do you find yourself thinking about how AI might affect their education, their entry into the job market? Yeah, I think if there's some negative impact, it might be like the CVs being filtered automatically without anybody looking at it. There's some use in the AI that's been... I wouldn't say that I would agree with all of the use of AI, but it's like in everything. You can't agree with every use of a tool that you create. You're going to create a screwdriver, but some people are going to use it to flip pancakes with it. There's not much you can do <laughs> to prevent them. What do you think the most positive possible applications of AI are that could change our schools and the first careers as your children reach those stages? Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about for a long time. I think the first time I started thinking about it was in a book from Neil Stephenson, The Diamond Age. There's this very intelligent book that teaches a girl and it teaches her from kindergarten to, I guess, university grades. And so it's a very personalized approach. I have twins and I see them in the same class not learning the same thing at the same speed. So having some system that would help them learn as much as they can, but at their own speed, like optimizing the way they learn, that would be perfect. And it's not something that's humanly possible because right now the teacher to student ratio is about 1 to 25, I think. And so it's just not possible without some new solution like AI mm to actually have a very personalized learning experience. And that's one of the fields that I would really like to see improvement from mm. AI. Interesting thought there. I've seen systems that address that at the post-secondary level. It's much easier to apply AI in education at the university level. It's a much bigger challenge in high school and it's virtually impossible below that. Not that I necessarily think that's even a good idea below that. Some part of me 
We're just beyond kindergarten. That was last year, but some part of me just is repelled by the suggestion of introducing AI into kindergarten, unless it's something that just makes the teacher's life easier in the background, like keeping statistics and filling out forms and other stuff that they have to do but don't like. Do you have any thoughts, visions, fantasies, daydreaming about AI in education? Yeah, actually, I think it's it's a good point. You don't want to have something that you don't want your kids to be taught by some emotionless system. And I think you have to look at it in a way that most projects that we were working on right now, they're not there to replace somebody. They're just there to make sure that they do a better job, that they do less error, for example. So if we can come up with a way to help motivate or a sort of gamification for the students that motivates them into learning more or improve their learning process, I think it could dedicate more time to the teachers and to giving more time to actually their students on one-on-one, maybe uh, Mm. on one-on-one meetings, for example. Wow. Olivier, how can people follow you, what you're doing, get in touch with you? They can have a look at our website, Explore AI. There's a form there to contact us. There's also a form, a little bit hidden, but if they search, they'll find it, a way to book me directly if they want to have a meeting with me. What I do at Exploria is mostly meeting clients, making sure that the project fits for both sides. I mean, having projects that will work for the companies and work for us as a company. They can reach me also on LinkedIn. I have a strong network there. That's actually the only social media I'm in. (laughs) So I would suggest connecting with me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, anything you want to add for our listeners? Advice, final words on how you see AI changing our lives? Well, I think AI is going to last. It's not there to leave. So if they have any question or they want to use it within their company and they are still not sure how to process, they can still have some, for example, an ideation session with us. We're not the only group that does that, but I find it very, very interesting for most companies. So if you are a company interested in AI, hire someone like us to do an ideation session just to see how AI could help their company and take it from there. Thank you. Olivier Caron-Lazat, it's been a pleasure talking with you. (laughs) Thank you, Peter, for the opportunity. That's the end of the interview. Olivier's website is explore, without a final E, dot AI. I'm really grateful to him for revealing how he makes all that work. It was a fascinating view of the sausages being made, so to speak, at the coal face of AI, if you like horribly mixed metaphors. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, we've talked about transformers on this show before, not the cool robots in this case, but the large deep learning models that learn some fairly generalized abilities from swallowing a large part of the internet. The most famous example being GPT-3. So far, the examples I've seen were trained on text. Well, DeepMind has a new learning model called Perceiver, and it generates interfaces for transformers to use images and audio and other media such as point clouds generated by LiDAR on autonomous vehicles. It's already doing better than the industry-standard neural networks on tests run on ImageNet, that huge database of labeled images that people use for training image recognition AIs. There's a link to the paper in the show transcript. By the way, I will be speaking on a panel at the Wonderland AI Summit 
in October, the 21st and 22nd of October 2021. And that panel is called The Benefits and Risks of Artificial Intelligence. And listeners of this podcast get a 20% discount on tickets. Use the code NWI20, that's they picked NWI for Next Wave Institute, which is my training and coaching organization, NWI20. Next week, I'll be talking with Daniel Demillard, founder and CTO of Foodspace, which uses AI to derive nutritional and other information from food labels. So you can ask high-level questions and get useful information out of an online grocery store. I want to know how that works. So we'll talk about that next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.